Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Well, I propose today to give a talk which expands the context of the exhibition beyond just Monet and Giverny. And I think by the time I get to the end, you'll probably see why I've decided to do that. I'll start with a quotation from Arsène Alexandre, a critic and good friend of Monet's, who said the following in 1904. Monet's idea had been to create a garden like no other garden in arrangement and extent. Giverny is a priceless collection of the most rare and intense harmonies, a palette without equal. Now, it's true that Claude Monet and his project de Giverny, which was embarked upon by the mid-1880s and still being refined at his death in 1926, inevitably dominates all considerations of the relationship between the artist and the garden during this period. Yet, as this exhibition seeks to reveal, there were others who were also engaged with gardens, this engagement ranging, as I hope to demonstrate today, across a wide spectrum of intentions and realizations, from, for example, gardens providing motifs for their paintings, where these motifs had already been in large measure pre-prepared in terms of composition and tonality, such as we get with John Singer Sargent, with his view of his friend Francis Millet's garden um, at Broadway, made in 1886. Or alternatively, gardens can be the subject matter for conveying horticultural achievements, such as Child Hassam, on the right-hand side, a record of the Blumenthal's garden at Villiers-le-Bel, outside Paris. Blumenthal was a very wealthy American and patron of the arts um, and artists, and was a keen horticulturalist. And so what uh, Child Hassam has done is to take the evidence, if you like, of the garden and then painted it. He hasn't made the garden, of course, himself. Alternatively, gardens were carefully laid out by the artists him or herself, to create ready-made compositions. That is, in a sense, the natural, now controlled to provide predetermined color combinations, perspectives, to meet the aesthetic requirements of the artist or maker. And we have just two examples here of Henri Le Cidaner, the white garden at twilight of 1912, made from his garden that he laid out at Gerberoy, um, outside Beauvais. And on the right-hand side, Henri Martin's The Basin, the Bassin, at Marquerol, um, which was his garden that he laid out in the lot. Equally importantly, we find gardens as springboards for a move into more radical modernism. That is, the move away from naturalist representation towards non-naturalism and, and abstraction. Um, in other words, the flowers become the basis for the patterning of color, such as we get, for example, in uh, Clay, Paul Clay's Flower Bed of 1913, or in Edvard Munch's slightly later uh, painting, Apple Tree in the Garden, where the apple tree has really been, as it were, flattened out onto the surface of the canvas and created into a sort of pattern which almost becomes like a piece of stained glass. Then, yet again, gardens can be seen as statements, either private or public, of ideals, such as the centrality of the family, as in the many Scandinavian artists' work, um, which we find really throughout the latter part of the 19th century. And I just put up one example here of Fritz Taulo in the garden of 1885. Or as statements of national identity. Soroya with his Spanish garden on the right-hand side, and in the center, Nikolai Astrup and his Norwegian garden. But before we go any further, we have to confront three important questions. What was meant by the garden by the mid-19th century? What was meant more specifically by the term the modern garden? And why did 
Particular and distinctive manifestations of the modern garden occur after about 1850. Now, gardens had formed part of visual, cultural, and scientific fields since ancient times, from Egypt, Babylon, Persia, to Greece and Rome, and the Ottoman Empire. And of course, in Europe, we find the hortus conclusus of religious and secular spaces moving to the great Renaissance and Baroque gardens of Italy, France, and continental Europe generally from the 16th to the 18th century. And I just put up two examples here. These were domains of absolute monarchs and the aristocracy, and were devised both as statements of cultivated nature, holding wild or untamed nature at bay, and of political and social authority. With the rise of the natural landscape garden, initiated in the United Kingdom in the early 18th century, while the distinction between wild and tamed nature became blurred, the notion of a garden existing in distinction to the landscape park remained understated. Even the area closest to the house merged imperceptibly with nature. And you can see this rather well, I think, illustrated in two works by Constable showing two views of Malvern Hall um, in 1817, where looking from the park, the park seems to go right up to the, uh, on the left-hand side, right up to the facade of the house itself. And on the right-hand side, although there's an element of planting in the foreground, it still, as it were, falls away, it breaks out, as it were, into the more uh, natural landscape, even though it was derived from 17th century idealized landscapes of Poussin and Claude, uh, to give a sense that nature was being embraced by um, the so-called civilized uh, world of the garden and the house. In anticipation of the modern garden in the 19th century, there was a move towards considering greater formality from the zone between house and wider landscape grounds. In the first instance, we see this being um, explored by Humphrey Repton um, in two views of his designs for uh, Ensley in Devonshire, or alternatively, in the development of specific national types, a, a sort of regeneration or reinterest in specific national types, such as the Italian, the French, and Dutch gardens. And then underneath, rather interestingly, the English uh, garden and pleasure garden, as conceived uh, in 1859. A little bit more informal, but still now we have the inter intervention, if you like, of terraces, steps, and more formal uh, pot planting. Now, while this reflects United Kingdom developments, the absence of widespread embrace of English landscape garden on the continent did not deter the development of bourgeois gardens over there, which, while respecting a wilder nature on its periphery, nonetheless introduced an element of semi-formality uh, with an element of the artificial, if you like, closer to the house. I put up two examples just to demonstrate this point. You'll notice, for example, in Caillebotte's view of his parents' uh, property at Hyères, uh, to the south of Paris, made in 1867, we have these former crown beds um, planted out in very sort of geometric shape, rings with color very clearly identified in, in rings within that crown. Um, but you have, around the edge, a certain element of wildness. <laughs> the trees are allowed to, as it were, penetrate. And that's perhaps even more clear in uh, Monet's a wonderful painting, which is in the exhibition, uh, Lady in a Garden of 1867, which records Monet's aunt's garden um, at Saint Adresse, outside La Havre, uh, where we have, again, these crowns, in this case, I think, probably planted with geraniums, um, but a, a rose bush 
uh, coming, springing straight out from the center, not asymmetrical, but bang in the center, and in the background, an element of formality also with standard roses. And in the very background, of course, we have this screen of trees. So it's sort of nature and, and uh, formality, if you like, trying to have some sort of dialogue between each other. Now, what is meant by the modern garden? What distinguished the uh, modern garden from those that had gone before was the fact that it was the product of industrialization with its concomitant rise of urbanism, modernization of transportation, colonial expansion, and the emergence of an ever more prosperous middle class. The former two agents encouraged individuals to seek respite from the crowded cities in the oasis of calm, retreats created either on a grander scale by, for example, Gertrude Jekyll, as in on the left-hand side, Folly Farm Berkshire, a garden that she created in collaboration with the architect she worked very closely with on many projects, um, Edwin Lutchins, a member of the Academy, and on the right-hand side, um, perhaps the more suburban garden, um, hemmed in by other houses, as we get in Kaibot's um, uh, view of his own uh, garden at Petit Genevilliers, where, is that it? Yes. Here we have the house and the next door plot just peeking up over the top of Kaibot's wonderful modern um, greenhouse in which he grew his orchids. <coughs> Meanwhile, the emerging prosperous middle classes provided a market for this new format. They had the interest, <coughs> the time, a rise in leisure, and the resources for the creation, maintenance, and the means to purchase art which recorded such exercises. They could plan, plant, acquire often expensive new plants, maintain, and enjoy their gardens. This market, together with the rapid advances in botanical sciences and colonial expansion, generated what has been termed the horticultural explosion of the 1850s. Imperial expansion, coupled with the innovation of safe methods of transporting rare plants um, from far distant lands, such as the Wardian case on the top left-hand side, literally a sort of portable greenhouse, really, um, uh, enabled importation of new plants um, from far afield without the plants dying on the long sea voyage. This was always something which had to be dealt with. Um, it was a great problem for Banks in the 18th century when he was accompanying um, Captain Cook. Furthermore, there were advances in botanical endeavor spearheading the diversification of new species and the growth in the range and varieties of existing plants through hybridization and so on. And I just put up an example of um, a publication which looks at the flowers of uh, greenhouses and gardens of Europe and has as an example a range of irises um, which cover a wonderful uh, kind of palette of, of purples and lilacs, um, not even addressing the white or the, or the uh, yellow iris, and just gives a sense of how hybridization allows a far greater range of colors which can then become part of the palette for the gardener and also for the artist. Now, in addition uh, to that, we also find an emergence of an interest in horticultural societies, um, exhibitions, such as this wonderful exhibition of horticulture held at Le Havre in 1863, um, and this goes on right the way through the 19th and well into the 20th century, um, and still, of course, carries on today, and also publications, whether these are journals and periodicals, or very influential uh, publications, such as William Robinson's uh, The Wild Garden, published in 1870, which has the very interesting subtitle of or are groves and shrubberies made beautiful? 
In other words, how do you bring that world into the world of wilderness, if you like, the wild garden, into something which can become part of the garden as it is, or the modern garden, as it is understood um, by the second half of the 19th century. Well, now, I want to now move beyond Monet and France and look at manifestations of the modern garden in art elsewhere, looking specifically at certain of these issues that I, ranged, I, I raised at the beginning, the range of different uses to which gardens were put, or the modern garden was put. But before we go any further, I fear that we've got to tackle a rather negative note. Um, I was going to put this at the end of the lecture, then I thought, no, I'm not going to end on a down note. We're going to end on a good note. Um, but we do have to tackle a very curious anomaly, which is the issue of the UK. Now, the notion of the garden from the landscaped acres of the 18th century and the allotments and kitchen gardens which coexisted for the laboring classes was something which was very well established in this country. And certainly, by the latter part of the 19th century, this certainly provoked artistic responses, um, and you find that the art, or the artist, and the garden become increasingly intertwined. For example, uh, Gertrude Jekyll, whose boots are on the lower right-hand side, and a wonderful painting by William Nicholson of, 18, of 1920, um, studied art in Paris before turning to gardens. She studied assiduously Chevreuil's um, famous treatise on the uh, law of simultaneous uh, color, which was something which she then adopted in the way in which she balanced colors in a garden such as this, which was an illustration to her book, Some English Gardens, which was published in 1904. And Alfred Parsons, on the left-hand side, artist, academician, laid out his own gardens in Broadway in Worcestershire and was also a landscape gardener in his own right, with a practice working across England, Scotland, and even the United States. The creations of Parsons and Jekyll were innovative, introducing herbaceous borders, combining the wild with the cultivated, giving careful consideration to the color balance and color sequences, and open to providing both the informality of Robinson's wild gardens and the tamed beauty of pathways, lodges, pergolas, and ponds. It's a wonderful kind of peaceful co coexistence, if you like. Why, therefore, did not this revolution in the garden, the advanced thinking about the modern garden that existed in the UK and which generated internationally influential manifestations, including Giverny, not generate as exploratory and experimental in art as on the continent, or indeed in the United States? Indeed, Parsons and his fellow British artists' responses to these new or modern gardens in the UK remain illustrative, indeed Ruskinian almost in their detail. And you certainly get that sense of um, Parsons here wanting to tell us almost in minute detail what each of the types of lilies and plants that he's, he's uh, orange lilies that he's uh, planting in his Broadway garden. It's illustrative, which is what he's really concerned with. It's not explorative, it's not visually explorative. Perhaps an explanation for this lies in the fact that the artists who might have explored such a relationship, namely the younger generation of artists who formed a new exhibition body called the New English Art Club in 1886, were sourcing their imagery from Paris under the influence of Bastien Lepage and naturalism which called for subject matter drawn from the life of agricultural workers rather than the manifestations of middle-class leisure pursuits. Insofar as works of art 
rather than, um, rather than illustration, were being created using the garden as the main subject. These were in the hands of Helen Allingham and Birkett Foster, and in Parsons' own representations up there at the top, in their nostalgia-ridden views of country cottage gardens, or else as backdrops to narrative paintings where their independence is overshadowed by the import of the story being conveyed, as we have, for example, in Herbert Latang's The Man with a Scythe. In other words, death is coming to visit the sick child, um, and it is located in a cottage garden, complete with cabbages on the right-hand side. But that's not the essence of the subject, and um, of, of, that's not the primary uh, subject of the painting. Now, moving across to the continent, before considering a small number of specific case studies which reveal important uses to which the garden was put to the service of art, I wish briefly to follow the route from the wild gardens of the UK to Scandinavia. Here, from about the 1870s, the garden becomes an accepted subject of the landscape painter. In several instances, the garden is recorded as a modest but essential adjunct to relatively small dwellings or modest dwellings, where their role as both decorative and functional, the vegetable garden, is duly recorded. And on the left-hand side, I've put up a painting by Gerhard Munter, who's a Norwegian artist, uh, in the garden, 1885. This is a view of his parents' garden, um, where he used to spend the summer, uh, many of his summers, early on in his uh, establishment as an artist. And it's really most intriguing, because we have here an attempt at some sort of flower garden, flower planting, but then in the middle is a box which probably holds probably rhubarb, which was a common plant that you grew there for drink and also as a, as a vegetable. Um, and you can see that the garden is actually hemmed in or caught by a fence which runs along the back there, but there's a wildness nonetheless which is allowed to kind of impinge upon the garden itself. And the notion that you might cut the lawn and trim it so that it looks like Kaibot's parents or um, Monet's aunts at saint Adresse is just not on the agenda. The, on the right-hand side, this is an early work by Fritz Thalo, who's a very interesting um, artist who becomes, has, develops a very important international reputation, great friend of Gauguin and Jacquemus Blanche, um, recording um, a view of his garden, his parents' garden at Kragero, um, just south of, of Oslo. And here you again get this wonderful sense of the garden. This is the kitchen garden here with an apple tree, some um, forcing probably uh, frames of some sort that have lost their glass, so we're in the middle of the summer, and here you have some wonderful upturned um, pots and so on. But there is an incredible informality. This is a sense that the garden is part of the terrain of, of domesticity, if you like. It's not there for display or for impressing your neighbors. It's there really to provide an important function. Such smaller scale gardens also form the subject matter of works created within artist communities. For example, the Danish colony um, at Skeen in, on North Jutland, where the dunes, vast sweeps of sandy beach, vast skies and open sea attracted artists such as Michael and Anna Anker, Per Kroyer, Drachman, and eventually Tuxen, who moved there in 1901. While the Ankers and Kroyer celebrated the unpretentiousness and indeed the naturalness of, your, of their gardens, as you really see here in two views by Anna Anker. This is the view to her house, and it's still there today, and you still walk through this little fence, and you can see this. She's not blowing it up. She's not making it 
she's not aggrandizing it or doing anything to tell you other than this is a small-scale um, property. And even when she's painting something as um, interesting insofar as it was an imported plant, the peony, um, here and marigolds in the painting of 1917, it still has a, an informality, complete with what is fascinating, a nasturtium uh, edge to the, the, um, the, 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 the path, which may in fact be uh, one of the ways in which, uh, well, it certainly was one of the ways in which paths were framed from the latter part of the 19th century onwards. Monet uses it in Giverny. And here with Croyer, we see Marie in the garden with Croyer's house at Skyen in the background. And again, it's really garden, it's garden run riot, it's not garden with gardening as we would fully understand it and it doesn't seem that that is really um, the, the intention. It's much more an exercise in the wildness that the garden provokes and the way in which the foliage provides this wonderful pattern of light and shadow which flickers across um, the surface of the subjects. Tuxon, however, was another matter. He moved into a house, as I say, in, in Skye in 1901, and there he is painting in front of his um, house um, shortly thereafter. And he, uh, having made an incredibly, had an incredibly successful career, uh, mostly as a royal portraitist and society portraitist, uh, amongst others, royal portraitist to both the Danish royal family and to the uh, British royal family, um, cultivated... Um, a very carefully planned garden in which you find, amongst other things, that he's introducing azaleas, rhododendrons, and so on. And on the left-hand side, uh, I've shown him one of his marvelous works, which is in the exhibition, uh, Rhododendron, in Tuxen's garden. I have a feeling, and if we've got any botanists here or horticulturalists, you probably can put me right on this, but I feel there's are azaleas and not rhododendron because they don't have enough leaf on them. But um, I'm not the specialist here, but it, it worries me. And also getting this riot of color all at the same time seems to be more that, so we may have to retitle the painting. Um, I just put up on the right-hand side um, another view of, that Tuxen makes of his uh, villa at, uh, at Skyen. To show again here, slightly allowing a little bit more of a release for informality as you come close to the um, house facade it's, itself. Now, having had this look at Northern Europe, I now want to look at uh, three specific case studies and consider really what they tell us about how the interplay between artist as garden maker and artist as creator of new art, if you like, um, makes use of the, of the gardens that they lay out. First of all, I want to look at um, Joachim, uh, Joachim Soroya. In the wake of the great success of his exhibition in New York City in 1909, Soroya acquired a plot of land in Madrid in that year on which he constructed a house um, complete with a studio and a garden. And here on the top left-hand side, I just show uh, an image of the garden as it is today. And on the right-hand side, him at work in his garden. The garden indeed was inspired by the Hispano-Arabic or Moresque gardens of Spain, which were rapidly falling into decay. And there is an element of uh, Soroya wanting to capture these gardens before they disappear. There's a sort of nostalgic um, yearning, if you like, to keep or retain that magic um, before uh, they get, as they say, swept away. And indeed, he had already and was going to continue to, vote, to devote a certain amount of time to the painting of such gardens. For example, the Alhambra um, on the right-hand side and also the Alcazar in Seville on the left-hand side. 
and he was determined to create his own version, drawing upon gardens he admired in Valencia, his hometown, Seville, and Granada. And you can see that really already within his view of the garden, he's doing more than just, even though this isn't his garden at this point, he's very aware of how the garden presents for him a series of perspectives, which allows him, as it were, already to have a controlled composition. And what he does when he moves to his own garden is to make, lay out the garden as a series of spaces which allow him to take up perspectival views, which allow him then to describe those, the individuality, if you like, of each of those spaces. And so we have on the left-hand side the garden at Soroya's house in uh, 1918, where he set himself in front of uh, one of these fountains. He had a series of water features in the garden with, with the water um, channels being um, framed by tiles, uh, moresque tiles, or otherwise uh, sitting places also using tiles, as you get up here, for example, in the seat, which is set under a bar of, of growth. Um, and then, <clears throat> having one moves from the water feature into this wonderful set of sort of colonnades to another space that opens out beyond. So it becomes a series of kind of outdoor chambers almost, which he's then capitalizing upon for his art. And in order then also to, um, if you like, push the whole process one step further, you'll notice in both of the paintings the importance of color and the importance of handling. How he's treating his plants, admittedly, planted by him and therefore as controlled as what Monet was doing at Giverny is to really plot out how color can work in zones, if you like. So you have, oops, sorry, um, red against green against yellow, red pink against green. And that then becomes, as it were, one, one color compositional zone. This becomes another compositional zone in terms of, if you like, range of colors. It's never very wide, but it's very carefully calculated. And um, I think the more that one starts looking at them, even though they do retain a certain element of depth in them, you nonetheless are very aware that he's also playing with the surface. He's beginning to push the color up to the surface of the, of the canvas itself. So we see pattern of color as much as we do see color as uh, representation or description of the plants themselves. Liebermann, uh, Max Liebermann, the German artist uh, who was really the head of what's been known as the uh, German Impressionists, had brought a, bought a property in 1909 um, on Wannsee, which is on large Wannsee, which is to the southwest of, um, of Berlin on the way to Potsdam. And there he uh, commissioned a house to be designed by Paul Baumgarten, and up there is an image of the house. The garden was laid out to plans which were formulated by um, a very innovative and very interesting uh, landscape architect called Albert, Alfred Lichtwag, who apart from designing gardens, was also director of the Kunsthaller in Hamburg. So he has both a kind of art historian, curatorial director hat on, as well as being a landscape innovator. Um, and he laid out, in fact, not only Liebermann's garden, but also a number of other artist gardens, including one for Kalkreuth, which lies, still exists, just outside Hamburg. Now, Albert Lichtwart's contribution to uh, what became known as the reformed garden movement in Germany was to think of the garden as a series of discrete zones. There could be, on the one hand, formality, 
that could be then semi-formality, and there could also be total informality. And taking this rather narrow plot of land, which is what Vanze consists of, uh, is a narrow plot that runs down to the lake with houses on either side, rather like uh, Kaibot had as one of the villas there that sits on that side. He plotted out, first of all, a formal um, terrace planting here, which lies just here above that herbaceous border, um, which was planted out with different uh, bedding each year so that it would allow Lieberman to have a different palette as he painted it. So this year, um, in uh, 1915, it's been planted out primarily with red, red plants, but then you might find that the year later it'll be planted out with blue and purple, or purple and yellow, complementary colors. Um, so that this is something that would give him a constant kind of change of variety, if you like, in terms of subject matter. Then moving slightly to the uh, left, we have the presence of what was known in Lichtwart's uh, terminology as a hedge garden. A hedge garden was in some senses an extension of the house into a series of rooms which were each room which was defined by a hedge. Um, and it could be either square, rectangular, oval, round, and linked usually with um, an arch, also uh, clipped and pruned in order to lead you from one space to the next. In a sense, it's a living pergola. Just as in the late 18th, early 19th century, the picturesque villas, you had an extension of the house into the garden through the, through the use of an arcade or a pergola. Now, and in fact, uh, Gertrude Jekyll and um, Edwin Lutyens do that very much in their own gardens. Um, here, Lickwart was kind of taking that idea, but creating it again through natural planting rather than by, through any architectural um, ingredient. Um, but in the painting on the left-hand side, uh, you'll see here uh, one of the versions, one of the views that Lieberman does of the hedge garden. And on the right-hand side, in contrast to the formality, if you like, or the semi-formality of the hedge garden, he then introduces uh, the idea of the birch grove. And this is the, bir or the birch avenue, which has an informality about it the birch trees are allowed to, as it were, hop backwards and forwards across the path which leads from the house to the lake. And, um, and as it were, they break out. So they're not a formal regimented group of trees. These are trees that are allowed to kind of burst from their seams of the constraints of that. And in fact, Lichtfelder is interesting because he also introduced um, the idea of the um, Heath Garden, which is again paralleled with ideas that were being developed by William Robinson and Gertrude Jickel um, in England, uh, very much in response to uh, Lichtfelder's own um, appreciation of the importance of the heathland, which lay to the northwest of um, Hamburg, his hometown, and his wish to bring that also into the garden. Um, now, there was also another dimension to uh, Lieberman's garden, and that is uh, the vegetable garden, which lay at the back, in other words, on the roadside of um, the Villa Advanze rather than on the lakeside. And here he laid out a formal, as far as we know, nut tree, um, pleached nut tree uh, screen, if you like, but then a path which was banked with herbaceous borders, and then behind that would be planted vegetables. So it becomes, 
in a sense, both a cutting garden and a vegetable garden. Um, and that up there on the top left-hand side is just as it's now been recently restored. And I just put up two examples, which we have in the exhibition, showing you uh, the way in which Liebermann is using uh, this material. Now, Liebermann made from 1913, when the garden had really properly bedded down, literally, it had sort of kind of come into its own. Um, he made some 200 paintings of the garden. It becomes his primary motif until his death in 1935. And what is fascinating about the way in which he treats the garden is that he uses it not only as the controlled motif, just as, as Monet does, but equally, and it's sort of in parallel to what Monet was doing in Giverny, he explores an increasingly um, lavish and experimental exploratory use of, um, of brushwork and of, of palette. Uh, he is often described, perhaps there, often described as the German Impressionist, but actually by the time he comes to painting his gardens at, uh, at um, Wannsee, he's really moving into almost a proto-expressionist mode alongside um, his fellow artists such as Slavok de Corinth. And when you look at closely at the, particularly the painting on the lower left-hand side, you're aware that although, yes, he's telling us something about the plants, it's as much about the gesture of the paint that goes onto the surface um, of this controlled composition as it is to do with telling us the detail of what the botanics are about, if you like, in the garden itself. That is, if you like, a secondary consideration. Now, it's that issue of what is the balance between the botanical information, the horticultural information that the artist is giving you, and the, uh, the uh, degree to which that horticultural botanical um, planting can provide a springboard to go into a new domain or do new domains of thinking about art is something which is explored in three um, artists, uh, just as examples. I mean, I could have pulled, um, you know, Matisse and so on as well, but I just wanted to, keeping my boundary, keep me away from France because um, I was trying to be a little bit more international. Um, it just seemed to me that it's important that we just look uh, briefly at what Kandinsky, Nolder, and Clay have to do. Oh gosh, I've left the second E off Clay. I do apologize, that's a typo. Um, because what is very interesting is that all three were absolutely were committed gardeners, although um, Kandinsky for a shorter period of time, only really when he was at Murnau between 1909 and 1912, um, but with Nolder from very early on in his career, even when he was residing in rented property as opposed to um, his own property, which he eventually built, bought and then built his own house to his own designs at Zebul um, to the northwest of Hamburg. Um, or Nolder, who uh, laid out and gardened um, his plot, uh, urban plot, um, in Zurich. Uh, all three artists really use or start with the garden as the making, but then use it as a springboard to take them into an area which pushes their art away from naturalism and representation. We are nowhere near the world of Alfred Parsons and his illustrations of the gardens that he laid out, or of um, the gardens or that, for example, uh, Miss Jekyll laid out. We're here looking at a way in which the massing of color, which can be gained from dense planting, as, for example, the use of the sunflower in, in Kandinsky's Murnau Garden of 1910, permits him to pattern or shape a pattern on the surface of the canvas so that we move away from this being a description of what grows in the garden to 
the patterning of color across the surface of the canvas. This now is the first move, as far as Kandinsky is concerned, towards abstraction, which is actually going to take place the following year, 1911, which is the year also of his major treatise concerning the spiritual and art, which is really the, if you like, the guidebook to abstraction. Um, and so, as I say, the, the sense of, of naturalism and realism is something that is now being firmly pushed to one side. But the fact that he's using the plants in his garden for this purpose is an important um, consideration. For clay, um, in the painting, uh, the white blossom in the garden on the right-hand side, it's a kind of different approach. Here he goes to specificity of a particular aspect of one of his rather small uh, flower beds um, in, his, in his garden in Zurich, and he there begins to develop a kind of network, a scaffolding of lines and blocks, areas of color, which allow him to map out areas of green and possibly blue plants. But the real focus is on the white lily above there. And what emerges is something which, if you didn't know that this was white blossom in a garden, you would be hard pushed to give it a title. Um, you have now been pushed really into the direction of a mode of abstraction, but it's this wonderful mosaic patterning which comes through an acute sensibility for color. Because if you look carefully at the way in which he's using color, it hasn't got the kind of explosion of Kandinsky on the left-hand side, but it's all very tightly held within ranges of green, a tiny bit of blue, green, yellow, and then just the white. So it's now down to the sort of characteristic that we get, and um, which we've become know, so well known for Clay's work. And then in the center, I put up Nolder's um, Peonies and Irises. This is a painting which dates from after he'd moved to Zebul in 1928, and where he carefully plants a garden laid out to inscribe the initials of uh, his initials and the initial of his wife um, with the bedding and the planting um, around that. It's rather, rather touching. But he goes in for riotous color. Um, and what you definitely see here is the way in which, although he doesn't push the use of that color and the use of the plants to such a, an extreme as we find in the Kandinsky, nonetheless, all sense of recession has been completely obliterated. Here we have the, the flowers literally slapped onto the surface of the canvas right up front. We're pulled almost into immerse ourselves in them, and the color becomes, as it were, bold blocks of color, blobs of color, across the surface of the canvas, very expressionistically handled. Then I wanted to finish with Astrup, because although he's not in the exhibition, he could have been, and there's a very good reason why he isn't, and I'll tell you at the end of the lecture. Um, Nikolai Astrup, a portrait of him by his fellow um, artist Bernard Volkstadt, uh, made in 1911 when uh, Astrup was in Berlin, acquired a property in 1912 on Lake Jolster, which is in fact where he was born and brought up, well, he was moved to in, at the age of two and was brought up. And in 1912, he purchased a property which was actually on the southern side of the lake, very inhospitable plot. Um, it was north-facing, which in Norway, with a very short growing season, is not a good idea at the best of times. Secondly, um, it was so steeply plunging down to the lake itself that it was very hard to find areas that you could usefully um, cultivate. And um, he set about not only establishing a garden, but also a farmstead, 
because he had to feed a very large family. He had a family of eight children in the end before he died in 1928 at the age of 47. That consisted of, first of all, moving a number of old cabins, old dwellings, from other places in the Yost region so he could accommodate this growing family. And that's what you have here in the spirit of conservation, and I'll come back to the, that in a minute. But he also um, set about preparing the terrain. He laid out a path that would bring him on a serpentine way up from the lake and a, at a re decent um, um, gradient up to the property itself. And here's the path here. He then um, laid out terraces banked by turf, which would allow him um, areas for cultivation um, so he could grow vegetables to feed his family. He laid out an orchard. He ordered some 200 apple trees. Um, he kept uh, a goat, uh, a cow, and several uh, geese and chickens. And he also um, uh, did a number of other things. He landscaped the garden so that he had a little uh, stone grotto and a, and a stone table. And he also trimmed the trees in such a way that as you walked your way up to the house, you would have viewing points out onto Lake Yelster itself. Now, what was the purpose of all of this? Obviously, he had to feed a family, so the need for a, a small holding of some sort was essential. But he also wanted to provide motifs for his art. So in that sense, he was very similar to what Monet was doing. Uh, you plant out your landscape, you, you make the landscape, you plant it out, and then you have control over the motifs that you're then going to make the subject of your art, as you see, for example, in the top two paintings up there. But he also had a conservation program. He believed that the plants, he believed, he recognized that plants in the vicinity of Western Norway, this is just north of Bergen, um, were under threat from uh, modernization of both, uh, uh, well, industrialization, but primarily modernization of agriculture. And so there was a need, actually, to rescue threatened plants. So he really turns his garden into a, a garden uh, conservation area. Uh, in order to make certain that at least somewhere within the region, these, there are examples of these plants which would be conserved for posterity. Now, in the process, he's therefore essentially planting his garden with Western Norwegian plants. And in that sense, he really turns the garden into none other but a statement about national identity. It is a Norwegian national garden. And that is um, what he then, as I say, paints up here, and then brings the garden inside into what he calls interior landscapes, and then depicts them also not only in paintings, but also in prints. Now, you may wonder why I've mentioned Astrup, and he could have qualified for this exhibition, because actually, along with Monet, I would argue that he's probably, and well, in some ways, he's an even more interesting artist than what Monet was achieving at Giverny, despite the absolute magnificence of the garden at Giverny and the, the magnificence of particularly the later Navier series. But what is interesting about Astrup is that he, he is creating a multi-layered garden. It's a garden which fulfills a number of different functions. And in that sense, we, it carries, he carries the idea of the garden onto several levels higher or in a different way from what Monet was doing. So if you want to see Astrup, you can go down and see him at Dulwich Picture Gallery, where he is at the moment, until early May. And there, there is a whole room devoted to his property, Astrup Tunnet, or Sandelstrand, where you can really immerse yourself in his garden response to Monet. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.